Hello everyone, welcome back to On The Ledger. This is your host Mohd Saeed and I'm back once again on your weekly rendezvous from Paris. This is an episode that some of you have long been waiting for. Today is the day we answer one of the key questions in crypto. Not the who is Satoshi question, the when Ada on Ledger question. If this is what you've been asking yourself, listen on because we've got the answer. Today, On The Ledger is honored to have a crypto OG on. A man who's played a major role in this space's evolution while being a skilled mathematician and a dedicated farmer. You've probably guessed it already, today we have Charles Hoskinson on. Charles is the co-founder of Ethereum and founder of Cardano, a proof-of-stake blockchain platform which he went on to found in 2017 after leaving Ethereum. Cardano is considered to be the first blockchain founded on peer-reviewed, researched and developed through evidence-based methods. And he'll tell us all about that in a minute. We'll be joined by a friend of the podcast, our head of platform, Fabrice Dautria, who'll walk us through the amazing work that's been done to bring Ada to life in Ledger Live. This is On The Ledger, the When Ada episode. Here we go. Charles, Fabrice, welcome to On The Ledger. How's it going? Uh, it's great. Out here in warm, sunny Colorado. Very good to be here again, Mo. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I mean, it's always a pleasure to have you on, Charles. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, uh, as I was telling you, I often listen to your show, uh, and I'm a big fan of yours. Um, so, you know, would you give us the honor by kicking this off Charles Hoskinson style? Hi, everybody. This is Charles Hoskinson broadcasting pre-recorded from warm, sunny Colorado. Always warm, always sunny, sometimes Colorado. And today we're joined by Mo and Fabrice. Now, where are you guys based? We're based in Paris. It's not so warm nor so funny, but uh, you know, gotta gotta live with it. City of lights and love. Yeah, exactly. So, guys, let's start by setting the table here. You know, Charles, you often define Cardano as being a third-generation blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, to those uninitiated, how would you explain, uh, sure, third-generation blockchain? How does it differ from a first and second-generation blockchain? Well, you know, we always use the definition that Cardano is an open platform that seeks to provide economic identity to the billions who lack it by providing decentralized applications to manage identity, value, and governance. So we, that's kind of the, you know, the, the one-sentence tagline of what the heck is Cardano. But the problem is that's a loaded definition because there's a lot of concepts there. And so we, you see terms like RealFi or economic identity or third-generation blockchain. Uh, so going to, on the blockchain side, really that came from – a more than 40-year conversation that people have had since the 1980s about now that, hey, now that we can move information instantaneously across the world to anybody, what else can you do with it? And a lot of people were talking about financial information. A lot of people talking about value. A lot of people talking about e-money, these types of things. So the hackers uh, from back in the day, the, uh, the, the Way Dyes and the Nick Zabos and uh, the Hal Finneys uh, and, uh, and the others – Really what they were doing is that they were kind of building protocols and ideas in the 1980s and 1990s, and over time those culminated up to Bitcoin, which was released in 2009. But by no means did Bitcoin just get created in 2009. It didn't come out of anywhere. It came out of the cypherpunk movement, and it came out of the digital money movement, like the digicaches and the e-golds and all of these concepts. Well, no one really paid attention to Bitcoin when it first came out. It was kind of an anomaly, and it was fun, but 
you know, who cares? It's just this open source project and there was a few people working on it and it seemed to stay up, but uh, it didn't have any value for the tokens. And yeah, you'd have crazy events like a guy bought some pizzas with Bitcoin and got two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. And that seemed like a good deal at the time. And there were StarCraft tournaments where first prize was $100, fifth prize, the Constellation prize was 25 Bitcoin. So it kind of gave you a sense of where the market was at. Uh, then around 2013, what happened was that uh, Bitcoin started achieving real traction and momentum, and people started taking Bitcoin really seriously. VCs started putting money. Bitcoin reached over a billion dollars of cumulative value from the market capitalization. People were doing professional mining, professional exchanges. And so suddenly people started realizing that while Bitcoin was a great experiment, it's not fit for purpose in that all it really does is it just allows you to push value around. You can only do push transactions. You can't really do much else. So let's say you want to issue an asset. Let's say you want to have a complex financial arrangement. You have to kind of build infrastructure on top of Bitcoin, usually centralized or in a substandard way that doesn't have a great user experience. And we tried to do that as an industry. We had protocols like ColorCoins and MasterCoin and these other things, and they kind of worked, but not really. And it was always a, a game of, of diminishing returns. So people got so frustrated, eventually uh, Ethereum was created. And that was really like when JavaScript came to the web browser. You know, prior to JavaScript, you could have pretty websites and nice pictures and little GIF flames and these things, but you really couldn't interact with a web application. You couldn't interact with a website in a meaningful way. When JavaScript came, then suddenly it was transformative. Now you have YouTube, and now you have Riverside, now you have Facebook, now you have Google. You have all these services that are really powerful because they're programmable. So the invention of smart contracts, the innovation of that, bringing them to blockchain technology, really what this did is it is it created programmability behind finance and then suddenly you can now issue your own asset you can have decentralized finance you can have oracles you have stable coins most recently nfts the problem is and this is something that we saw with the, the cardano movement back in 2015 when we were thinking well what's missing the technology of ethereum the technology that the second generation brought us it has three areas that really need improvement so much so that you need fundamentally different protocols and thus probably a new cryptocurrency to do that one the technology doesn't scale. It first lives in a replicated system. And what that means is that as you add people, you have the same amount of resources, you get less overall for everybody, which is why the gas fees go so high. It's why the user experience doesn't get to where it needs to go. And that's the case for all replicated systems. Now, there are scalable protocols out there. For example, BitTorrent for data sharing, the more people who download a movie, the faster you get it. So you, if you have a million people downloading something, you get it super fast. If you get five people, you get it very slowly. So that's an example of a scalable protocol where people provide more than they consume. Unfortunately, this is not the case for modern cryptocurrencies. Second, the interoperability side, there's well over 10,000 cryptocurrencies. And there's the legacy financial stack. And we don't have right now the ability to move people, information, and value easily between systems. And so it's kind of... We, we love interoperability when we have it. Well, you have Bluetooth and your Bluetooth can connect to a Lamborghini. Your Bluetooth can connect to the uh, uh, you know alarm clock on your nightstand. Okay, that's the diversity of devices that Bluetooth connects to. Same for Wi-Fi. Your, your phone, whether it's a Samsung phone or an Apple phone or a Google phone, it can connect to the Wi-Fi anywhere in the world. So the example of great interoperability, but we don't quite have that in our industry. Now, on the legacy banking side, we see things like the open banking movement and ISO 222, these types of things. So there's a lot of attempt to make it easier for things to talk to each other, but we have yet to do that as an industry. And again, you need some bespoke protocols for that. And finally, and the most important part is the governance component. 
who pays and who decides. So on the governance side, we tend to think of governance with products with respect to the custodial company, Windows to Microsoft, the iPhone to Apple, these types of things. Well, what happens when you're decentralized? Who's the custodial entity? Who's in charge? Who's, who's building things? Uh, you know, who's, who's going to pay for stuff? These types of things. Now, we have some miracles of, of decentralization in that respect, like the Linux Foundation with Linux Kernel. Uh, this is the only case where Russia, China, the United States, Israel, Iran, and other actors actually work together on something. Nothing else in the world, but they'll work on the Linux kernel directly or indirectly because they're consumers of it. So that's just an example of, of, of what we need in our industry. We need some governance solutions so that we can be truly decentralized. We need some interoperability solutions so that we can talk to everything and you can move things around. And then finally, we need truly scalable protocols. So what we did in 2015 is we said, well, we don't know how to solve that. So what we're going to do is go hire an army of scientists, and that army of scientists is going to write a boatload of papers, and then that's going to basically create some scientific foundations upon which we can ask foundational questions of what's really possible and what's not possible. So we started a consensus agenda and asked what is a blockchain and is proof of stake real or not and these types of questions. We started a programming language agenda and many others, and now we've written over 140 papers with over 10,000 citations. So we've gotten to a point where a huge cradle of scientific research has been done, and a lot of which has actually been peer-reviewed at major venues like crypto and Eurocrypt and CCS. So we got a lot of confidence that the approaches that would solve these things are right, and the next step was to build it. So we had to go and figure out how to build it, and so we chose to go a little off the beaten path. So we built it using a process called formal methods. And so the idea there is that you basically write a specification, and then you prove in some way that your software meets that specification. Now, this is common in the aerospace industry. It's used a lot in health sciences for you know, like uh, software that, for embedded devices that goes to your heart. Computer processors, when they're doing the VLSI work and they're designing like the next Intel chip or the next AMD chip, they use this because the consequences of failure can be the loss of billions of dollars or human life or both. So we said, well, if this is your, your financial freedom, this is your identity, this is your agency as a person, probably should use this process. So we chose a programming language called Haskell. Uh, it's in a language that came from the 1980s, but it's probably one of the most advanced languages around. And we hired a small army of very specialized engineers, and we wrote over a million lines of code, and we're still number one for GitHub commits. So Cardano launched officially in 2017, and it's gone through a lot of updates. It went from a static and federated system to a dynamic and decentralized system. We added smart contract support, and now we're deep in the weeds of scalability and governance at the moment, and we're kind of working the way through as a community of roadmap. And there's now over 3.5 million people who are part of the Cardano ecosystem across the world, more than 100 countries. So it's been a, a pretty remarkable ride going from a, a whiteboard and you know, some concepts to a, an army of scientists and a legion of papers to where we're at now. And it's really exciting because we, we get to see all the growth, 5 million assets issued on Cardano and uh, a lot of great USPs there and tons of dApps are coming, over 900 are under construction at the moment. We're kind of just getting started in that uh, that part of the ecosystem. Yeah, well, it's such an amazing introduction. You said a lot of things to unpack there, but about that first whiteboard presentation, I actually saw that. The first time I heard of Cardano was that whiteboard presentation that you've done. It's on YouTube today. And it actually does really um, you know, explain everything that you've said. But to recap, you know, what you've said is that we used to have value transfer and then we had value transfer with conditions, which is like the, you know, obviously the transition to Ethereum. And the problem is that we didn't have scalability, nor interoperability, nor governance. And today, most of these 
you know, second generation blockchains are either moving to becoming a third generation blockchain or there are new blockchains that are being created today yeah. that have these three different components in mind. And what's different about Cardano is that Cardano is actually following a peer-reviewed process that is a little bit different than the recipe of most of these other blockchains. Um, and obviously this has a lot of um, benefits and drawbacks uh, as well, like, um, you know, maybe it takes a little bit more time or maybe, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the things that would move a lot faster on the other side uh, would would take, you know, a, m much more, I would say, uh, research. How, 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 how at the end of the day are, is the difference there and what do you think is the long-term benefit to that peer-reviewed uh, process that you're following? Well, I don't argue that it slows you down. It just depends on where do you want to pay the price. So if you move fast and break things, you can get products to market very quickly. And sometimes they work spectacularly well. Um, but more often than not, what ends up happening is they contain within them some sort of flaw uh, that if it's exploited could law result in the loss of money or a complete collapse of the system, as we saw with Luna, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's by no means the only example. There's over $10.5 billion of DeFi hacks and exploits and protocol flaws that occurred last year alone, according to Chainalysis. Or actually, it might have been Elliptic's report, but you know, one of these uh, reg tech firms uh, drafted a nice report on it. Uh, so uh, if you take the time up front to write down some basic principles about what you want, you get three big benefits. One, you get clarity. Like When you look at a lot of these protocols, well, why did they do the things the way that they do? It took years for people to actually figure out why Satoshi did some stuff with Bitcoin. And it turned out a lot of the things that Satoshi did were incredibly prescient. And there's still some hidden things that are being discovered, parameter choices or other things, or just clever uh, workarounds that had he done it a different way would have actually caused a lot of problems for Bitcoin. Uh, so first, clarity is super important. Two, you want to share your ideas. By going through a peer review process, you're introducing it to the totality of all of academia. You know, those 10,000 citations, they're, they're not just citations. You know, those are other people taking the time to read that paper, be inspired by it, learn something from it, and talk about it. So you learn from each other. And so what you do is you have an amplification of your scientific rigor. You go from a handful of scientists uh, to now hundreds, potentially thousands, that you can talk to, work with, and collaborate in the future. And in many cases, they come to you and tell you that there may be fundamental problems with things that you've done. And so there's a quality control mechanism that's like no other. And third, I think you have a moral obligation to prove uh, to the community, journalists, to prove to interested third parties who don't have technical skills uh, that what you're doing is reasonable. Because right now we live in the heroic founder era. The reason why we trust a blockchain is potentially because we trust the bona fides of the, of the founder. Oh, that person's a genius. They'll never make a mistake. And that's not decentralized. You're building all your faith, hope, and trust around a person. And it, I thought we were selling decentralization here. I thought we were selling the, uh, the, the, the whole concept that you, people can be replaced and new people can come in and no one is essential. So if you follow a peer review process, then that doesn't matter the gender, the location, the geography. People come and go. You can lose a scientist, they can die of cancer, they can retire, they can go off and do something else, and you still have some fundamental integrity behind the process itself, and that means every year you get constant innovation. The reality is that these protocols are now much more complicated than Bitcoin. They have massive attack surfaces. You're putting demands to do things that Bitcoin could never do. 
embedding metadata into transactions at large scale, identity into transactions, contingent settlement, complex programming languages, doing the scale at thousands of transactions per second, issuing many assets, tracking many assets. These are super complicated things. And so you need really advanced protocols for it. You can't predict ahead of time that those protocols are going to work completely. So what happens when you have to develop the next protocol and the next protocol? Where are you going to get your pool of people to do that? And how do you make sure that that pool of people are not beholden to a political philosophy or a geographic bias or a particular situation? Uh, let's say, for example, you love Russian blockchains. Well, after the Ukrainian invasion, the world can't do business with your core team or pay your core team. Setting politics aside, that's a problem. How do you get reliable production? Well, if you're in the peer-reviewed system, you, you have universities all around the world in that respect. So it made intrinsic sense to do that. Second, it meant that I could have a much easier time working with the engineering that I'd like to do uh, in that uh, when we started the project, we really wanted to use formal methods. Well, for formal methods kind of presuppose a, a mathematically described protocol. Well, when you start thinking along those lines, you're writing a paper. So if you do a little bit of extra effort, you can go through the peer review process. So 80% of what we already have to do, we have to do anyway for engineering. So this argument, it slows us down. Well, look at the facts. Ethereum has been pursuing proof of stake since 2014. They still have not achieved it. They've had to redo their design a half dozen times after finding critical flaws. We started proof of stake research in 2015. We went a massive, long standing thing. Cardano was in market in 2017. The first major proof of stake update to that protocol moving from BFT system proof of stake was 2020. So we already have two years as an ecosystem on Ethereum. And we're talking about significantly more advanced variants of proof of stake, including post-quantum ones, fast finality ones, ones with dynamic sharding, you know, all these upgrades like a decoupled clock. And they're still just trying to get to proof of stake as an ecosystem. So to say that somehow the peer review process slows you down, it's like, well, our competitors that are not following that, they're, they're having a hard time actually dealing with complexity. And we're not the only ones. Avalanche came out of Cornell. Algorand came out of MIT. You know, there's now a lot of coins that are starting to value the process of carefully writing your stuff down, uh, building a community around it, and, and really parsing those questions at a deep level. And even Ethereum is starting to do that now. If you look at the latest formalizations of Casper, lo and behold, they're research papers. The finality gadget, all this stuff, they're writing research papers now. They're co-authoring with Stanford professors. They're doing everything that we started doing in 2015. Yeah, it's fascinating to see that transition and always to see, you know, all the different recipes that are being cooked up by, by the different projects out there. But yeah, let me let me switch gears. Now that we've got the full rundown on Cardano and, uh, you know, the evolution um, and, you know, how everything's been evolving in the past few years. Fabrice, I'd like to ask you a question. How many times have you been asked when ADA in the past couple of years? That's a, that's a very, very hard question. Uh, thank you, Mo, for asking. Um, honestly, I joined Ledger almost four years ago, and it was already the number one question at that time. So needless to say, we were slow, uh, way too slow. It's, uh, it was unacceptable. Um, but now we can answer, yes, uh, it's available. Uh, I don't know exactly when this podcast will air, uh, but it's like I was telling Charles, it's, uh, it's QA okay now, so it's supposed to, to go live anytime soon, and so you will enjoy uh, your you know, Cardano support on Ledger Live in a matter of days now. Um, when I say we were slow, we were slow, but we're still one of the first hardware wallet to support Cardano. What was really slow is the full support across Ledger Live products. Um, if I remember correctly, 
I was still, you know, in charge of the application on the on the hardware wallet uh, when we released the, the Cardano app, uh, which which was developed by Vacuum Labs, if, if I'm correct. Um, and and that was somewhere. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's around 2019. And since then, we we've been yeah. really working super hard to to keep track of all the protocols' evolution, to make sure that whatever Vacuum Labs build, we are ready to review and push to production very fast, so that all the Cardano users uh, can actually, you know, enjoy the safety of their hardware wallet and not wait a single day to, to be able to enjoy the new features. Um, so now we add Ledger Live to, to, to our, you know, support range, I would say. Um, and it's great. I hope we will bring uh, uh, ease of use uh, while, of course, adding security, but that's, you know, our core DNA, so it doesn't need to, to even mention it. But I hope that the user experience will be great. That's really what I'm, that, what I will be looking at. I want people to, to say, I'm happy. It's way better than anything out there. And if, if that's the answer, then, then we, we made a good job. Maybe a last thing, uh, Mo. As always, uh, we've been telling that for a few few days now, a few weeks even. Um, Ledger did not do this. Uh, that's what's interesting here because um, it's... Cardano is a very, very complex protocol. Uh, it, a lot of people are involved. Uh, there is a strong community. There is a very strong sense of community behind Cardano. And here, the way we handle the integration in Ledger Live um, is unlike anything we ever did. Uh, we discussed with the, with the Cardano ambassadors, I think, a few, few months back. Um, and we went through this process that they have in place. They call it Catalyst to basically provide ideas for projects and go through a community review approach. Uh, I went through calls with them to explain what we wanted to do and, and they've been helping us uh, to define which features are really the most relevant to, to, to the Cardano users. So it's been very, very strange for us because remember Ledger is a company. So we're not used to this process of, you know, everyone chipping in to, 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 to tell everyone what, what, should, what should come out in the final product. But it was super interesting because we discussed with many people, uh, many different backgrounds, many different opinions, and at the end of the day, we'll see what the, re what the result is, and then we'll see if people like it. But uh, the simple you know, approach of dealing with this was super new. It was really, really decentralized in the way we did it. And so, well, it's a first, uh, so it deserves to be, to be said. And, uh, and now we'll, we'll see what the users think uh, about the actual integration. Yeah, and what's so magical is that that's true decentralization right there, the, the, the kernels of it, the foundations of it. Yeah, it's very easy in Web 2.0, modern business, to go and just talk to people and, and say, okay, well, this CEO is going to make a deal with this CEO. So uh, Alan Malawi calls up uh, Steve Ballmer and says, hey, I need some auto, audio software, uh, auto software for my automobiles. Uh, so can you go Microsoft, write me, sync? Okay, let's negotiate it. And they hammer it out and then they create uh, some software. Now it's in Ford cars. It's a lot harder when you're a company and your counterparty is a community, you know, because there's no titles and hierarchy and these types of things. And what's so cool about it is that part of the Cardano governance experiment, that third pillar, has always been trying to figure out ways to allow any company to do that. So the Ledger story is not unique. Anybody listening to this, if you're running a company, you want to support Cardano. You don't talk to Charles. I don't make that decision. You don't talk to the Cardano Foundation. There's no CEO of Cardano. You go and talk to the community through Catalyst. And what, what ends up happening is you get a much richer conversation usually because you're doing the direct customer research at the same time. You're seeing not only what people want, but you're actually 
talking to the people who want it instead of talking to some middleman who's the aggregator saying, I think my customer wants this particular feature. Uh, so it requires different modes of collaboration. It can be a little frustrating at times, but on the other hand, if you do it right, you get this collective wisdom and intelligence and you end up building much more useful products that are a lot cooler. And one of the things we're going to be focusing on as an ecosystem all throughout 2023 is to try to take what Ledger is going through and scale that up and really supercharge that and, and make it as easy as possible and remove some of those off ramps, uh, those those on and off ramps that have, have not necessarily been the greatest uh, so that uh, we can see thousands of companies do this and support the protocol without any centralized coordination whatsoever. And uh, and basically each company can find what they like. So it's it's really cool to, to work on it. And your point about complexity is well well understood. And that's another area that we're trying to focus on is, is mass wholesale simplification. Um, usually in academia and in engineering, the first generation tends to be overly complicated. And then future generations, you tend to simplify because you have a better mastery and, and knowledge of the topic. And you realize that you can find simpler protocols or cut out unnecessary things. Uh, and then you end up getting a much easier time dealing with it. Uh, so that's the same thing that's happening with Cardano. So after the Vossel hard fork, a huge part of the development effort for the rest of the year will be modularity, interface improvements, simplification, and also just documentation and pedagogy. Uh, and trying to get that where it needs to go so that it's uh, a little easier to deal with it. And hopefully the protocols will evolve. Part of the input endorsers agenda and why uh, it's been such a long road for us uh, to get input endorsers out has been also how do we not introduce tons of new complexity to the protocol in the process of, of rolling this out. Uh, otherwise, you run into edge cases and it's very difficult to model and test your system. And you know that's where Solana is running the problems. There are these other guys that have these daggish like protocols that are very fast and have high throughput. But then when something happens, uh, the whole network collapses and you have to manually restart it, or you end up destroying your performance for a long period of time, or you get uh, inconsistencies that have to be manually hand resolved or checkpoints have to be introduced. So, you know, we want to solve that, but we don't want to also make it 10 times harder for Ledger to work with it or these types of things. So it's a, it's a constant war of simplification versus feature richness and, and these types of things. And it's, it's been the project of my lifetime in the last six years. Yeah, that's the power of decentralization. You know, it's hive brains. Um, you know, having a whole community of people that are passionate and um, that believe in that pro you know project uh, will drive most companies like Ledger uh, to uh, you know work on these integrations. Um, but Charles, speaking of decentralization, you know, you've always been very outspoken about decentralizing financial systems, and you know, quote unquote, banking the unbanked. Um, but the thing is that what I'm truly feeling at the moment and what's kind of like the predominant focus of the space has been unbanking the banked rather than the other way around. But Cardano has some sort of a different strategy. Um, first of all, could you give us an overview of you know, your efforts um, with regards to providing financial services to um, you know, underdeveloped countries and how us as, a, as, a web, as you know, the crypto Web3 space could contribute to that? Yeah, so I, we tend to break it into two different areas. Um, we call it RealFi Core and RealFi Applications. And so RealFi Core is really about saying, how do you create decentralized identity, uh, decentralized compliance, decentralized reputation and credit uh, scoring, decentralized data attestation, all of the plumbing required for a minor, modern financial ecosystem. We're usually, if you're born in Paris or born in Colorado, it doesn't matter. If you're in the developed world, you're usually born into a system where a lot of decisions have already been pre-made for you. 
Okay, so you have a passport system, you have a birth certificate, you have modern banks, you have modern compliance systems, you you have a high degree of credibility behind uh, credentials and these types of things. You know, if you graduate from University of Paris, that's a credible institution. Uh, And so when you look at the developing world, the absence uh, or the fragmentation of these things or the asymmetries of these things where one thing may be very good but another thing not so good – that is the primary barrier to banking the unbanked because you can't get the applications next. You can't talk about credit. You can't talk about bank accounts. You can't talk about insurance. You can't talk about safe movement of value or custodianship or financial markets that are derived from that like stock markets and uh, capital markets and fundraising and venture capital and these types of things. So on the core side, we have initiatives like the African Credential Alliance, um, initiatives in Ethiopia in particular, where we're getting over 5 million students um, into an identity system we constructed called Atala Prism. Uh, and that system basically gives people self-sovereign identity built on open standards called DIDs. It came out of the W3C, and there's even a foundation for it called the Digital Identity Foundation. Tons of members. Microsoft's a member. We're a member. IBM's a member. But these uh, credentials – basically will give them the ability to have agency, economic agency and identity in a, in a global economy. Once you have that, then you can put the rest of core on. Then and only then can you have a conversation about remittances, microfinance, insurance and so forth. So slightly more evolved economies uh, like Kenya, they already have enough core there that we can actually now have the real fi application conversation. So we have partners in places like uh, uh, Nairobi uh, possesses one where we're actively developing a lending product with them where they can offer a product to market that's blockchain based. It has uh, digital identity built into it. It has reputation built into it. All of these things that live on the Cardano network. And then people can lend stable coins uh, that have liquidity into the sovereign currency uh, to people in Kenya and get a monthly return. You know, it seems simple, but the plumbing required to actually do that and have equivalent NPL rates is uh, non-performing loan rates is is quite involved. So we've been in Africa now for well over four years. We have a big chunk of the company there. We're in Burundi, Zanzibar, South Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, and other places. Uh, in Zanzibar, we have partners that do different things. So let's say you want to do all this digital identity stuff. You want to do real five core. Well, there's a layer beneath that, which is just telecommunication infrastructure and energy infrastructure. So for certain jurisdictions like Burundi and Zanzibar, the telecommunication energy infrastructure is not necessarily where it needs to be. Burundi, only 11% of the country is electrified. 2.5% of the country has reliable access to the internet through a smart device like a phone. In case of Zanzibar, they have better electrification, but the telecommunication infrastructure is not where it needs to be. So we have a great partner called World Mobile that we work with. They're actually building an entire internet service provider, and they're actually creating telco infrastructure at a very low cost, but they're building a blockchain-based and trying to make it more community-controlled instead of a top-down telco like a, like a, like a Vodafone model or you know, a T-Mobile model, these things, but more like a, a co-op model in that respect. Well, if that works, we can franchise it out and send it all throughout Africa, and that gets that layer zero, that baseline infrastructure where it needs to be. And then you could then build up to RealFi Core, which is the plumbing for finance. And then once you have that, you can build up to the third level, which are the applications. So we have innovation in all three parts of that stack, and you know we've been for four years pursuing it. And it's usually done through uh, public-private partnerships and through partner development. 
So you have incubators and accelerators find very ambitious young people that are they want to make this their life's work, and you bring them in. So we have partners like Ice Addis that we work with there. You have national organizations or transnational organizations that you could work with, whether it be the World Bank or Reconstruction Banks or perhaps the Milken Institute, and you build relationships where and when that makes sense. Some are educational. Uh, some are relationships where they actually do direct foreign investment into the jurisdiction. And then there's the distribution model for real core. Usually a B2G to C model makes a lot of sense. That's a business to government to consumer. So that's what's happening in Ethiopia. So our relationship there is directly with the Ministry of Education. We work with them. They push it to 5 million students. And if that works, we can keep pushing that and perhaps get the national ID system as part of the Digital Ethiopia 2025 agenda. Then every consumer has the core. Then you can start building applications on top. And those are usually done by those young entrepreneurs that the incubator accelerators come in, and they're the ones who get the local licenses. They're the ones who take the business risk, and then it's just a capital question. And, and the finances are great. Returns are phenomenal in these jurisdictions. It's never been a case of, is there a good ROI? It's usually rule of law, jurisdictional stability considerations, or a lack of infrastructure that prevents you from getting those returns. Once you've ameliorated those, you can have a lot of direct foreign investment. And the entire thing comes through. So this is my particular passion. You know, we built Cardano to have these capabilities. Other people use it for NFTs. Other people use it for DEXs and traditional stuff. Uh, I.O., we're very focused on the developing world and economic identity. And there's a natural philosophical question of why. Why, why do we do what we do? I, I, I think the magic of cryptocurrencies is not the returns. It's not, you know, some people are doing cool stuff. It's the fact that this is the first technology in the world that has true equality built into it. Not fake equality where people say, oh, we need to be equal and let's, let's write a constitution and have some rights. No, true equality built into it where every single person, you guys as ledger integrators, have the exact same interface and access to the system that I do as the guy who came up with it. That's never been the case. You know, some person using a Microsoft product doesn't have the same access to Microsoft products as Sasha Nadella does, but you guys do. So that's true equality, and it doesn't care about your race, your gender, your money. It doesn't care about where you're born. So to me, we have a moral imperative, a moral obligation to push ourselves to get this technology adopted with as many people in the developing world as possible. And my hope is that it will reduce waste, fraud, and abuse and ultimately build much more fair economic systems for everybody. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and I think that's you know one of the very noble things about Cardano is that it didn't really forget about the ethos of why uh, this technology was created in the first place. Um, but there is something that was very very interesting that you touched on that I really want to underline, which is the fact that for some people self custody is a luxury, while for other people it's kind of a necessity. Yeah. Um, and today there's a I'd say a wide majority of people in the West that would choose convenience over freedom. Um, but with what we've recently, um, you know, seen happen in, you know, Canada or Ukraine, kind of might be even, you know, a wake-up call to some of us. What are your thoughts on that matter? Yeah, unfortunately, there are forces that are trying to get rid of self-custody, which is just insane. It's the same groups of people that want to ban cash or any of these other things. Um, I think you have a human right to own the fruits of your labors. Uh, and the whole point of self-custody is you own your money. The minute you get rid of self-custody, then suddenly you enter in a world where your money belongs to somebody else. And depending upon the political situation, they may decide to deny you access to it. Uh, and I, I've seen some horrible things happen in my lifetime. I, I used to live in Virginia and I went to a diner a lot and 
the lady who worked there, her husband was an undocumented immigrant and uh, he did drywall and he was paid uh, cash to finish a job and he got pulled over by a police officer and they took his money, civil asset forfeiture. It was lawfully earned money, but they said, oh, it could be drug money and it's his job to sue the government to get a proportion of it back. Now, of course, he's not going to do that. He's an undocumented immigrant and they knew that that was the case, so they just took it. Uh, where I come from, that's theft, <laughs> you know, and digital self-custody prevents these types of things happening because no one can see it. And nobody knows you own it. Uh, and that's why Ledger is such an important tool. It not only gives you the ability to do digital self-custody, but your products and the other hardware wallet products, uh, they basically give you a high level of assurance and security that your funds are safe, much better than a bank in many cases. Uh, which is fractional reserve. You can have bank run if your economy collapses or a bank can just take your money from you. So we always advocate for self-sovereign identity, uh, for self-custody. And uh, you know the way politics are moving, some people are trying to take it away, especially in the European Union. We've seen a lot of chatter about it, less so here in the United States, but I have seen some legislation that's been pushed in, in that particular direction. Uh, but, not, but we should be asking more than just self-custody of assets. We should be asking about self-custody of all things and self-verifiability of all things. So uh, one of the reasons why we're pushing this self-sovereign identity is you create your identity yourself. It's not given to you by the government. You create a debt. You own the public key, just like you hold your crypto keys. It seems fundamental, but when you start having that, that means you can't be shut out of the identity system. Self-verification means that you build a system in a way that when a claim occurs, something happens, you're able to verify the authenticity of that yourself. Think about a voting system. Currently, the way I vote, I vote, I send the paper ballot in, I hope to God it's counted, I hope to God it's counted correctly, and I hope to God that the system has integrity. Well, a self-verifying system, a system with inclusive accountability, very much related to self-custody, would give you that ability. You can verify yourself that your vote was counted. You can verify yourself that your vote was counted correctly. You can verify yourself that no more people voted than people registered and everybody who's registered is following the protocol. They're lawful registrants. So uh, I think it's part of that broader conversation, self-custody, uh, self-sovereign identity, self-verification, all of these things. And these are the foundations of democracy and the foundations of liberty and freedom. And if you don't have them or a government tries to take them from you using some bizarre excuse of consumer protection or national defense, really what they're trying to say is we'd like to install a tyrannical regime. Uh, or a regime with the potential to become tyrannical because, well, we like power and we like the old order. Uh, and that's that's not what I signed up for. And we don't build products in that particular direction. So we're real glad to have you guys around at Ledger. And you've done remarkable work and especially making it easy for people to do self-custody. Most people, cryptocurrency space, still leave their cryptocurrencies on wallets, on exchanges. And the fact that Ledger is around gives them a safe option to actually do that themselves uh, and also it gives people an ability when they die or they get Alzheimer's or something to do estate planning and if they're clever about how they store their, their assets and pass down their crypto from one person to another crypto person, just like you would a pile of cash or something like that. So it's, 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 the, it's the Lord's work in that respect. Yeah, and I mean, you nailed it when you said that it was a human freedom and we're, we hope to keep it this way. Um, but we still got a lot of work to do. And Fabrice, you know, we were speaking about that duality between freedom and convenience. Um, you're obviously part of the teams that are working on innovations um, and new product releases uh, that would help, you know, bridge that chasm between uh, these two elements. What can you tell us about that? Well, um, 
I think it's still very early. Um, right now, uh, Charles said that Ledger is doing a great, great job. I think we're doing doing a good job, and we could we could do much better. Um, Self custody is not easy. Uh, it it needs to. It's a wake up call for many people, especially in the in the Western countries. But at least what we can do is make it easier so that people are not so afraid of losing their funds. I mean, the, the real problem with self-custody is that you are now fully responsible for your actions. And that's something super scary for people that were, you know, guided and handheld uh, through, through their entire lifetime. Um, so for some people, it will be easy and it's kind of basic. I think some, some, some other countries, in some other, other countries in South America, for instance, they, they truly understand the value of self-custody, okay, from, from the beginning. Um, for us uh, in France or in the US, uh, sometimes it's way harder to explain to my mother why she should, you know, uh, self-custody uh, her crypto. It's not so clear in our mind. Uh, she, she would trust the bank. Um, so what can Ledger do? Well, um, we are working on things I cannot actually tell a lot more about, but we try to obfuscate the complexity of all these private keys that you need to manage. So right now, you have one hardware wallet, and of course, it gives you access to all your cryptos, you know, Cardano included. But in the long run, what we would like to have is essentially something that, that is kind of bridging the gap with what Charles was saying. We, we want to bring one device to allow you to be your your only key to Web3 in general. Could be identity, could be value, could be you know, a tool that you use to, to, to answer some governance proposal, could be many things, but it should be super easy to use. The, the real challenge right now, I think, is, the, is not so much the UX or the UI, because this will improve over time. The real challenge is the, is the foundation on which you know, our entire industry is based. It's these 24 words that you need to save somewhere. This is the main, you know, the elephant in the room. How can we make this easier so that people can actually still keep uh, keep their, their, their funds their, their own while having much more security, not losing it? Uh, so people are talking about social recovery, but there are other options. Uh, and so we're looking in, in, into things like that. Uh, maybe in the future you'll, you'll hear more about this. And I would I'd like to invite you guys to a collaboration. So as many people know, we have a very strong relationship with Carnegie Mellon University. Currently, that's with formal mathematics. Uh, however, we're starting a collaboration with the HCI group, the Human Computer Interaction Group at CMU. And they have a really phenomenal group there. It's one of the best in the world for interface design, user experience, and these things. And one of the programs that we've been talking about kicking off with CMU is to study, is there a better way of doing uh, the account creation recovery uh, than just 24 keywords. We all kind of accept Bit39 and say, oh, it's the way to go. But maybe there's a more visual way of doing it that has better learnability, memorability, but with equivalent or greater amounts of entropy in that respect. Uh, so uh, we're going to give a research grant to CMU, but it would be nice to have some applied partners uh, as well. So I always have to pitch some of the things that we do. And Ledger is, is right in the trenches. And I know you guys think about this constantly of how do you build a better user experience, especially when you start talking about extending the user experience of self-custody to semi-self-custody. So you, you have control, but you have proxies and delegations and also estate planning, where in the event something happens where you lose your mental faculties or you die suddenly – uh, how do you ensure that that crypto mm -hmm. is not lost in that respect? Yeah, absolutely. I think we would love so to collaborate we can, we on that. We can take that one offline, but I just figured I'd mention it here.
But to your point, it's a hard problem. Before we move on to the last segment of the show, um, Charles, it'd be hard to have you on without talking about the market. You know, you've been in the space for years now and have experienced multiple bull and bear cycles. Uh, but it seems like this past bull market, you know, brought a significant amount of adoption from the likes of brands and artists, mainly thanks to NFTs and culture. So will this bear market be any different than previous ones? All right, so you have a time for capital accumulation and new people to come in and start thinking about it. And then you have a bear market, and that's the builder's market. You know, there's builder bear, so there's builder's markets are with bears. Uh, Bulls are for adoption, bears are for building. So we're entering a building stage, and there's a big, big check that our industry's written about usability, inclusive accountability, a lot of stuff like recursive NARCs, layer two protocols, a big check our industry's written about third generation protocols, we got to get it right. We got to get it done. And everybody's well capitalized. I don't want to hear some excuse that people don't have money. Uh, the market gave a lot of these uh, third generation cryptocurrencies and Ethereum billions of dollars to go and play around. So they have to deploy that capital with wisdom, not going and sponsoring some soccer team or FIFA or, you know, they actually have to spend that money on real things, scientists, engineers collaborations. They have to build wiring and, and create standards. Like, for example, why don't we have a smart contract standards body? Well, you know, it just makes sense. Uh, you have $10 billion of DeFi hacks. Smart contracts aren't being written well. Why don't we create standards across blockchain, cross industries, so that you can verify that the smart contracts are written correctly for consumer protection purposes? There's also going to be, at some point, global regulation. And it usually happens in the bear market. Uh, so right now in Washington, you have H.R. 7614, the Digital Commodities Exchange Act. You have the Lummis Gillibrand bill that's landing tomorrow. Uh, You have uh, the Biden executive order, and that's just the U.S. side. European Union has its own stuff going on. There's a whole global conversation right now. So our industry over the next 24 months has to get regulatory consensus, and that has to have a Consumer Protection Bill of Rights. We finally have to have a definition of decentralization. You can't just say it. You have to be able to measure it. And feel it. This content is provided for informational purposes uh, only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. Do your own research and the loss of profit is your sole responsibility. Otherwise, we have to just real time replicate everything the legacy financial system has gone through. So, all of that is going to happen during a bear market. The bull market's actually the least interesting because there's not a lot of progress. Everybody's just spending money on wealth accumulation and hype and big conferences with 50,000 people and golden bulls, which is just, a, it's amazing how like the old is the new again, right? You know, Moses comes out with the tablets, he sees the golden bull, you know, you go to the Bitcoin Miami, you see the golden bull, you're like, have we learned nothing? Uh, so, so you know, it, it, that, those are the least interesting times. The most interesting times are the bear markets, because once you're removed from all those demands, you actually can pick up the phone and call people and collaborate with people. The adversarial nature eases up a little bit. The poaching eases up a little bit. I can't tell you how many people are trying to poach our people and they're making absurd offers because of the bull market. Well, now that that's fading back, people are actually saying, instead of trying to poach, they're saying, hey, how do we work together? You see, so, you know, both are good and you need both to be able to do things. The bear market of 2017, 2018, uh, it led to what we saw in 2021. And the bear market that we're in right now is going to lead to the next generation of cryptocurrencies, which will allow us to, in my view, become a global scale system uh, with tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of adherents and entire governments running on cryptocurrencies. El Salvador just invited 44 central banks 
to go to San Salvador and talk to them about adopting Bitcoin as a national currency. That conversation alone is going to spur a huge amount of innovation at CBDCs and a huge amount of innovation in nation states doing GovTech on blockchain. So the next bear market, uh, this bear market, is going to yield the biggest bull market I think we've ever had as an industry, Mm -hmm. whenever that comes. It's funny that we call it the bear market while Bitcoin's at 30K. Um, I never thought I'd say that, but here we are. Well, it was the same when Bitcoin was $250. I lived through that bear market and, oh, God, Bitcoin's so low. I said, wait a minute, guys, I was in Bitcoin before a dollar. God, when we were sitting at dollar Bitcoin, we would have done anything for 250 this is this is nuts, and it's the same when uh, we were at uh, twenty thousand Bitcoin, we collapsed down to four thousand dollar Bitcoin. Could you have imagined in twenty thirteen talking about four thousand dollar Bitcoin? Uh, everyone, oh, you're crazy! I did a class, a Bitcoin or how I learned to stop worrying and love crypto. And the last lecture, I talked about the future, and on the slides, I, I was talking about what would be necessary to get to ten thousand dollar Bitcoin, and it was kind of a fantasy slide. We're like, well, that'll never happen, you know. But it's it's fun to talk about. And then if we get you know to twenty k, and we go down to four, we're all, oh, I guess the dream's over. Pack it up, kids. Let's go home. Let's go do something else. I, I think people have unrealistic expectations sometimes. Yeah. I mean, future is bright. So this is time for the last segment of the show. This is free for all. So for this segment, I've actually decided to share my role with you guys and have you ask each other one question each. Uh, This is our usual way of participating in decentralization. Uh, So feel free to go first. Okay, I'll I'll start. I'll jump right in. Um, So I've been following the the Cardano ecosystem um, for several years now. And... My question to you, Charles, would be, with so many initiatives in so many different areas, um, if you and you alone had to you know, foresee where, what will be the main driver uh, of this platform in the next five years, let's say, um, would it be more retail or institutional? Would it be more NFT-centric or pure value-based? Would it be more identity or something else? How do you see the future? You've been through a lot. You've been through all the all the crypto winners that are possible. Um, just recently, we were talking about this NFT trend that is happening on Cardano that was not really expected. Uh, so I guess my question is hard, and uh, I will not take you accountable for any anything. It's not an advice. It's not uh, um, you're not uh, you are not able to to see into the future. But in your guts, what would you like to see uh, in your dream world? Well, I think it was Steve Jobs uh, who said, any future you can predict in 10 years is a pretty boring future. Uh, so uh, so I, I'll leave it there. I mean, there's plenty of great initiatives, like the NFT initiatives are really bearing a lot of fruit. Um, you know, I, I believe once we get all the Basho and the Voltaire stuff done, it's just going to be obvious that this is the platform for DeFi and this is the platform for RealFi. Uh, so th- there's going to be a huge amount of growth in that respect. I-, I think when regulation comes, the demand for compliance, you need to have a sensible way of, of handling the metadata and identity requirements and doing regulated DeFi. So that's going to be a huge growth area. And it's hard to know what that looks like because you have to know what the regulation looks like. And then you have to have that negotiation in that respect. But it's coming and it's not optional. And then it actually creates an intersection with STOs, security token offerings and They'll kind of smash into each other, and that's going to be a huge wave of adoption from institutional investors. Um, There's a lot of cool things once RealFi Core comes into play. You'll have an enormous amount of innovation from 3 billion people who previously been completely left out of the global economy. So you have once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, much like when China finally opened up in the 1980s. There were all these opportunities that that led to, and it created this colossal economy 
Well, something of equivalence will be there. Uh, there's a lot of connecting tissue stuff. Um, for example, uh, a lot of things need to be figured out with just removing friction and commerce and thinking of wealth in terms of a portfolio. You know, I'd like to get to a world where you don't measure wealth at all. I'm worth $500. No, you say, okay, I have a portfolio and I have some silver and I have some NFTs and I have gold and I have euros and dollars and some stocks and some fractionalized ownership of my house and all these things. And that's your wealth is that whole portfolio. Then when you go to buy something, you pay in whatever you want. So you go to Starbucks, oh, I'll pay in silver. And then they get paid in whatever they want. So maybe Starbucks has said, well, our Forex is a little weird. So we need to up the amount of pesos we have on our books so uh, let's uh, take all of our transactions in Paris and pesos for the next six hours to get our pesos in. It's crazy to think this way, but that's literally the world that we're moving in, and that'll be a completely decentralized process. So if all the interoperability comes into play, it's just going to work. And so the, the integration of open banking principles and, and these types of things into a conventional cryptocurrency is, is a big open question. I'd love nation states to run uh, crypto, uh, that there's sovereign currencies on Cardano at some point. We're not quite ready for that as an ecosystem, but I'd say within 10 years we could be. And the one that would be most exciting is there's been a lot of discussion about a pan-African uh, currency, kind of like the euro. Uh, so uh, I know Kagami has on numerous occasions uh, stated this, and there's been a lot of activity in East Africa in particular about some sort of shared currency. Well, if they do that, why don't we make that the first transnational currency that is a native cryptocurrency? Not a CBDC, but actually issued on a cryptocurrency. There you go. And it's one of those cases where you can't do a CBDC because how do you get all these 53 African nations to work together uh, and cooperate? They're probably not going to, but they can cooperate with trustless technology like a blockchain. So things like that uh, get me up and their scale influence. Well, that's completely dependent upon the facts and circumstances that are beyond our control. We have no control if the fangs get to the cryptocurrency space. Uh, you know, we have no control if governments regulate it very harshly or very liberally. We, we just have to react to that, and it's not going to kill it. It either speeds it up and adds fertilizer to the soil and waters it, or it turns it into an arid desert for a bit. But the roots are there, so it'll survive the seasons regardless. Charles, your turn. You got a question for Fabrice? Or ledger in well, general. Well, I already asked the question about CMU, but um, I do I do have to go here. I'm about 12 minutes over for another meeting, but I always ask this question. Uh, it's, this, it's a good thought experience. So if you were a cookie, what type of cookie would you be? It's a question to both of you. Uh, I'll answer, and I'm not answering on behalf of Ledger, but I'm definitely a, a chocolate <laughs> milk cookie, like the standard one, you know, the, the basic one. I'm very classic in, in for cookies, at least. What about you, Mo? Uh, I'd have to agree with Fabrice, the, the very tender ones that are just coming out of the oven mm. and very hot and tasty. These ones are really good. Yeah, so. it's, it's, it's those uh, Danish butter cookies uh, for me. Those are the best. They come in those blue tins. Ah, so good. So I know that next time you're in Paris, uh, we, know, we know what we have to prepare on our side. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we need to find the best, the best place for cookies for, for Charles. Thank you so much, Charles. Uh, it's a pleasure. We're very much looking forward to what you do with Cardano. And, you know, we're happy to have finally Ada live on Ledger Live. <laughs> and I know the Cardano community is as well. Thank you guys so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Charles. See you. That's it. What a conversation with Charles and Fabrice. It left me with a few things to think about, especially cookies. If you want to learn more about Cardano's integration, head to ledger.com. And if you want more of this, I highly suggest you hit that subscribe button because we've got a lot more coming. This was On The Ledger from Paris with your host Mo Syed. Till next time, take care. Au revoir.